0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, November 18th. The midterm elections were held last week. To talk more about the results, Lucas Brady-Woods joins me today. Lucas, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: How would you sum up the midterm elections here in Colorado?
1: Well... Apart from a few races, the Democrats really dominated. They retained control of all statewide offices, the most high profile being, of course, governor, secretary of state and attorney general um, and and U.S. Senate. Uh, Democrats also strengthened their hold on the state legislature. In fact, it looks like they're going to have a veto proof majority uh, going into the next session. Voters really seem to reject Republican claims that leadership needed to change a few a few races to To specifically touch on briefly, Polis defeated Republican challenger Heidi Gannal with more than 58% of the vote. It was actually the first race called after polls closed. Polis said voters chose him in part because his administration focused on issues that actually impact people's lives. Uh, He also mentioned uh, in that same vein, protecting reproductive and LGBTQ rights and saving Coloradans money. Ganahl's platform, his challenger, focused on cutting taxes and increasing fossil fuel production. Another race to look at was uh, the U.S. Senate race. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett was elected to another term. He defeated Republican challenger Joe O'Day with about 56 percent of the vote. Both candidates ran on economic issues, but Bennett said voters responded more to his vision for addressing inflation. He referenced his record, too, in particular, the child tax credit that he helped push through Congress. Bennett also ran on increasing transparency in healthcare and getting special interests out of American politics.
0: So it's safe to say the midterms went pretty well for Colorado Democrats, but you said that there are a few exceptions to that. Tell me about those races.
1: Yeah, a few races that that maybe weren't so close or didn't go as well as others for Democrats, they're they're two different races. The main ones would be the 3rd District and the 8th District. Both were too close to be called on election night. Both also have national significance because they could have potentially impacted the balance of power in the U.S. House of Representatives. However, Republicans have now uh, secured their majority in the House of Representatives as of this week. But in the 8th District, it was different from the 3rd District. It mainly because the Democratic candidate won in the 8th district. Uh, Democrat Yadira Caraveo defeated Republican candidate Barbara Kirkmeyer. But with Caraveo's victory, she will be the state's first congresswoman of color. Then the race for the 3rd congressional district is also one that didn't exactly go Democrats' way, but they performed a lot better in the 3rd district than they thought they were going to. Republican Lauren Boebert, the incumbent, was expected to sail to an easy victory there. The district on the Western Slope is considered a Republican stronghold. So the fact that Democrat Adam Schiff made this a really tight race with Boebert was very unexpected and um, definitely says something about the platform she was running on and the platform he was running on as well.
0: So should Colorado even be considered a swing state anymore?
1: That's hard to say most Republicans ran on fairly moderate platforms, as did most Democrats, especially the Republicans that gained more traction. So moderate positions seem to appeal most to voters in Colorado across the board. And it's important to remember the majority of Colorado voters are actually registered as unaffiliated, not as Republicans or Democrats. And that's telling. I think it may be hard to consider Colorado a swing state when Democrats have pretty tight hold on power. But the party affiliation and candidate platforms here seem to indicate voters are Are more interested in specific issues rather than partisan politics. But, you know, it's hard to say overall.
0: Let's talk about the other very important part of this year's election, ballot measures. What happened with those?
1: Well, there were a total of 11 of them on the ballot going into the election. And like you said, there there were some very important ones here. Proposition FF was passed, and that will actually create funding and provide for free school lunches across the state at all the state's public schools. And that's actually uh, going to add a tax to raise that money on Coloradans who are making over $300,000 a year. And like like I said, that one passed. Um, Another one that passed, Proposition 121, that lowers income tax here in the state of Colorado by a fraction of a percent. And then there were... um, I want to touch on this before I move on, three alcohol ballot measures. Um, two of them were, were rejected outright by voters. And that was one that would have allowed alcohol delivery and another that would have increased liquor store, retail liquor stores across the state. It would have actually allowed more uh, liquor store owners to open multiple locations. Um, and that's despite huge amounts of money that was pumped into the measures from grocery store corporations and alcohol industry. And voters pretty much rejected outright two out of those three measures. Um, There are two other measures that um, were very tight races and that actually both both passed this week, one of which was Prop 122, and that decriminalizes psilocybin. And that's the psychedelic chemical in so-called magic mushrooms. And it it decriminalizes it mainly for use in mental health and medical treatments, not necessarily for recreation, but uh, it is decriminalized and it does retroactively lessen or rescind some convictions for so-called magic mushrooms and some of these psychedelics. Uh, Prop 123 also passed by a thin margin after a lot of counting. And that is, um, Prop 123 dedicates existing state income tax to affordable housing projects and issues. So that's interesting and and I'd be interested to see if there was any confusion with voters uh, you know I'm not saying there is but I was I'm interested to see if if how many voters understood that that ballot measure would use existing tax revenue to put towards affordable housing projects. What we can look at with these ballot measures is you know it is a a, a very split state on some of these ballot measures but you know, they ended up passing, and and that means there is support for a lot of these initiatives.
0: Were any of the ballot measure results surprising?
1: The results of Prop 123 surprised me a little bit. That's the one that would dedicate existing income tax to affordable housing. And I, I was honestly surprised it was so close. And like I said, I wonder a little bit why that is. And there could have been confusion around what the, where the money was coming from and, the, and, and if it was a new tax or an old tax. But, you know, to be clear, it takes existing income tax revenue, not add, it doesn't add a new tax. And uh, I was even a little bit surprised about Proposition FF, um, which was passed, but it was closer than I expected. And Prop FF would provide free school lunches for all public school students.
0: Since election season is winding down, what will you be looking at in the state government?
1: Well, I've definitely been watching some of these races that took longer than expected, like District 3, for example. But other than that, I'm going to be looking ahead at the legislative session. Um, With Democrats in power, once again, they'll likely try to get a lot done. So I'll be watching what legislation is getting a lot of attention. And then once the session starts in January, which bills actually come to the floor? It'll also be interesting to see how the political attention changes now that campaign season is over. Mainly, I'm thinking about the new 8th Congressional District, because it has the largest population of Latino voters in the state. And Both Democrats and Republicans spent a lot of time and money targeting the Latino community there for votes. And now that the election there is basically over, it'll be interesting to see which party and which elected officials continue to pay attention to the Latino population after the election. And, and that goes for the 8th District and across the state.
0: Lucas, thanks so much for making sense of the election.
1: My pleasure. It certainly was an important one here in Colorado and across the country.
0: You can follow Lucas's reporting at KUNC.org. One of Fort Collins' oldest Mexican restaurants closed last spring. Pobre Pancho's owner wants to sell the property to a fast food chain planning to knock the building down. But as Mickey Capper reports for KUNC, the family who ran the restaurant for decades is now fighting to preserve the building and its history.
2: Asher Hahn lets me into his humble blue and yellow building on North College, formerly known as Pobre Pancho's. Here the two murals, they're beautiful. I honestly wish that we could have made this fly. Hahn has spent almost a year trying to sell this building to Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers chain so they can replace it with one of their popular drive-thrus. But Fort Collins city officials now say that the building is a part of local history and demolishing it won't be so simple. But before he disappointed the family who sold him the restaurant, before he was wrapped up in a bureaucratic battle over the nature of history, Asher Hahn was a devoted customer of Pobre Pancho's. The recipes are still the best in town. For decades, Hahn spent his lunch breaks from his HVAC business enjoying the food and hospitality of Pobre Pancho's founder, Frank Perez. He loved to come over and sit with my wife and I. My dad
0: felt like he was friends with everybody who came in.
2: Monica Bird is Frank Perez's daughter. She grew up around ponchos and even remembers Han's order. I think he had an enchilada. Green chili enchilada with a fried egg over easy. The menu is based on recipes that Frank's mom brought with her when the family moved from Mexico. As one of the only Latino kids in some of his classes, Perez experienced pretty blatant racism. There was a trip to a local restaurant in high school. The manager comes up and says, we will serve everybody but those two. When Frank Perez grew up, he opened his own restaurant and ran it tirelessly for five decades. But then came the diagnosis, cancer. He would work through anything, but when they finally told him the size it was, he was like, I can't go in anymore. When Asher Hahn heard that Perez was selling the restaurant, the loyal customer followed an impulse. Shoot, maybe I ought to buy it. It wasn't that I needed that restaurant, but I wanted to keep it going. Asher Hahn bought pobre ponchos in August 2020 and began renovating. He added new appliances and put fresh paint on the walls. Two months later, after a lifetime of building community around green chili and a friendly hello, Frank Perez died. As the months passed, Hahn couldn't break even on the restaurant. My accountant kept telling me food prices is going up. Since he first bought the place, Han says that Raising Cane's approached him regularly to buy it. After a year and a half of losing money on the restaurant, he decided to sell. Monica Bird was crushed. I was dumbfounded. It really felt like my dad had passed again because it was such a big part of our lives and it's gone. But one morning, there was a new sign in front of the building. Historic Review Underway. Poncho's was one of the oldest family-owned Mexican restaurants in the city, and a cornerstone of North College. So Fort Collins officials made Pobre Pancho's eligible to become a landmark. That means any changes to the building need a city-approved plan to preserve its history. Hahn disagrees with the decision. Oh, there's history there, no question about it. But the building itself does not qualify in my eyes. Paint it different colors, could make a house out of it. Jim Bertolini reviews development plans in the city for historic preservation. He says that it's about what happened at the building, not what it looks like. We need to be able to preserve the generic buildings that have very non-generic stories in them. Because the restaurant where people came together as a community, that building holds those stories. For Monica Bird, the city's decision has led her to see her father's place in local history in a new light. An individual from the ghettos of Mexico can go through life and make such a historical imprint. You don't have to be some rich person. I mean, you read about other people in history, you don't think of yourself as part of history. The back and forth isn't over. Bird is applying to certify pobre ponchos as a landmark and fundraising to buy the building back. Han still wants to sell to the chicken finger joint, and hopes a dedication to the Perez family of the new Raising Canes will satisfy the city. For KUNC, I'm Mickey Capper.
0: That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. The Colorado Edition podcast is posted every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at Edition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Have a great weekend.